Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. This is Jeremy Bean, and with me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. So Dave was like raptured away or something? or uh, Dave couldn't make it into the studio this morning, but through the power of technology, he will be joining us later in the episode for a pre-recorded session that we had a while back. So <laughs> you uh, Dave fans will get a little bit of the fletch later on in the show. Did you just say they'll get a little bit of the flesh? Of the fletch. Okay, because that sounded sexy for a bit. There. <laughs> in the news today, we have a very interesting spin on an issue that's been around for quite some time. This coming from rawstory.com. Citing religious freedom, North Carolina clergymen sue state for right to perform same-sex marriages. This is so incredibly ironic. This is not ministers suing the state saying we can't have gay marriage because that would violate their religious freedom. That's that's the kind of conservative line we've been hearing for quite a while. Right. This is quite the reverse. Members from the United Church of Christ, which tends to be pretty liberal, mm-hmm. uh, but also uh, members, pastors from Lutheran, Baptist, and Unitarian congregations, all, cha- all filing a federal challenge to Amendment 1, which was the law that was recently passed in uh, North Carolina banning same-sex marriage, They jointly followed a challenge to that, claiming that it is their religious freedom to perform gay marriages. So when they and this law actually interferes with yes their religious liberties. So when they when when the law says that they can't perform marriages, are they talking about even in the religious sense they can't even have religious ceremonies? Looking at the language of the bill, it says that the state is prohibited from doing this. So mm-hmm. I don't think this is a law saying that you can't do a kind of ceremony. But these can't be considered state weddings. They can't be recognized. Right. They can't be performed by people acting on behalf of the state to solemnize the marriage. So this is a clear violation of the of the free exercise clause, yeah, wouldn't well, it be? That's, that's according to one of the plaintiffs in the case, uh, Reverend Joe Hoffman. He's the senior minister of First Congregational United Church of Christ in Asheville, North Carolina. He's quoted in the article as saying, As a senior minister, I'm often asked to perform marriage ceremonies for same-sex couples in my congregation. My denomination, the United Church of Christ, authorizes me to perform these ceremonies, but Amendment 1 denies my religious freedom by prohibiting me from exercising this right. And they said this is the first out of 66 marriage equality lawsuits that have been filed. Wow. This is the first to evoke the First Amendment rights to free exercise of religion. Yeah. That's always been an interesting paradox in these when the religious right is claiming they have it they have the right to discriminate against right. people. Uh, or they have the right to bully, or any of these other things. And they're actually saying it's their religious right yeah. to impose their religious morals on others. Yeah, it strikes me as a bit of a paradox, right? Because wouldn't it equally be somebody else's religious right yeah. to do the opposite? And, and the only response one could possibly give is that, well, look, you know, if you're looking at the religion, you don't get that from the teachings. But I, I highly doubt that they're going to want to trust the government to decide what religious teachings are the legitimate interpretations. Yeah, we've, the government does not get involved in 
in the theology of yeah. these congregations, yeah. which sometimes becomes an issue in these church-state cases. Uh, when it came to who counts as a minister of the gospel mm. to receive these parsonage exemptions, and we saw that that could sometimes be a problem. There might be a very broad definition as what counts as a minister in some congregations. But the state is not going to decide whether or not your doctrine is theologically sound, right? right. <laughs> they only care what you believe and that you have the right to yeah. exercise that belief. Your religious freedom to ban gays uh, from getting married and your religious freedom to make sure that they do get married, those are mutually exclusive freedoms. They can't coexist <laughs> uh, without contradicting each other. So it's, yeah, I'm interested to see how this one actually pans out. Yeah. But the term freedom in general has been more and more co-opted by, mm -hmm. it seems like, on the right to yeah. basically cover anything that you want to do is, is now freedom. So you have yeah. the freedom to you know, not pay taxes <laughs> or the freedom to you know, basically not have any societal responsibilities <laughs> Not whatsoever. be subject to anti-discrimination laws. <laughs> yeah, and it just reminds me of like when I was a kid with my brother, we used to have the thing where it's like, you know, I'm going to swing my arms. And if you happen to get in the way of my arms and get hit, that's, my, that's not my fault. You're doing it. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing. Like I can just do, go on a rampage and do it's whatever like I want. It's like complaining that yeah. someone's face is bruising your knuckles as you're punching them, you know. <laughs> Some of the religious right people are getting really good at co-opting the language of the left to make their points. In my personal opinion, that's kind of always been the method of operation of fundamentalists is to find people who are making better arguments and imitate what they're doing, <laughs> imitate their style. Yeah. We recently saw this with the American Family Association's response to a campaign that Equality Mississippi is pursuing right now. One thing that made the news quite a bit a couple of months ago was the Arizona law that was going to allow people who own uh, – Christians who own businesses not to give their services to homosexuals if it if it violated their religious yeah. conscience, right? Which, which just guts anti-discrimination laws of anything. Yeah. And luckily the Arizona legislature um, – well, I think they did pass it, but their governor did not sign it into law. In Mississippi, on the other hand, where a very similar bill was proposed, it did get signed into law, and it will be put into effect as early as July 1st. Yeah, again, it's another religious freedom law yeah. protecting businesses who discriminate against their gay customers. According to pinknews.com, <laughs> Europe's largest gay news service is the, is the okay. tagline. Uh, according to Pink News... What Equality Mississippi is doing, since they've kind of failed this battle, it's being made mm -hmm. a law, they're sending out stickers to their members, a blue sticker with a rainbow bar running through the middle. And it says, we do not discriminate. If you're buying, we're selling. Mm -hmm. As a kind of signpost to put on your door to advertise to customers that you're you yeah. you're not going to be exercising this this religious privilege to discriminate against right. uh, gay people. Uh, it seems to me like a pretty fair thing to do. It's also yeah. a way for these businesses to show solidarity with that cause and and make right. it known that they're accepting and allow people to who do support who are allies of the of the gay community to you know patronize these particular businesses right. you know and, and show support support these establishments exactly you'd think so jeremy but in fact what you're doing is you're bullying christians <laughs> yeah yeah that's what the american family association has to say quoting buddy smith if you do that you are agreeing with these businesses that christians no longer have the freedom to live out the dictates of their christian faith and conscience 
which seems to me like a bit of a non sequitur. <laughs> um, like, I was looking for the logical connection right. there. His, yeah. his other quote was, it's yeah. not really a buying campaign, but it's a bully campaign. Yep. Oh. Yep. It's that, being that's carried a nice out. Turn of phrase. Continuing the quote, it's being carried out by radical homosexual activists <laughs> who intend to trample the freedom of Christians to live according to the dictates of Scripture. You see how the, what we just talked about in terms of the term freedom being yeah. co-opted, and now that I'm trying to wrap my head around that, you have the freedom. It's against the freedom to discriminate, and if you put a sticker saying that you're not discriminating, that's violating. Right. How does? Right. Instead of seeing that as a free act, right, that's <laughs> violating somebody else's freedom. You know, if one sticker goes on, here's another term. You're making me look discriminatory when you don't discriminate <laughs> is essentially what it's saying. Here's a, another quote from our buddy there, uh, Buddy Smith. They don't want to hear that homosexuality is a sinful behavior, and they wish to silence Christians and the churches who dare to believe this truth. Again, another one is silencing, co-opting mm-hmm. the you know, usually something I think of like in critical theory rhetoric, the notion of silencing. And now, yeah, we can see here Christians are being silenced. You know, if one sticker on a on a door or the front door of a business is trampling the rights of Christians, I just can't imagine what people think of Dave's car when he drives down the road with about 500 bumper stickers. We, let me paint a picture. He, just, he has Christian blood all over the front of his car. Yeah. First of all, it's a very large vehicle. And when you're behind it, like at a stoplight or whatever like that, you're confronted with a billboard of a variety <laughs> of liberal feel, uh, causes. You can't help but feel indoctrinated. indoctrinated. Atheism, feminism, yeah. every like, bumper sticker. I feel like I've been to a mass demonstration each time I pass his car in the parking lot. Hard to wrap your head around that kind of that thinking. thought process. I suppose carrying on with this theme, <laughs> here's another thing that I saw this week that is hard to get your head around. It was an article published in Christianity Today, getting to the root of female masturbation. Now, at first, I thought this was going to be a tutorial on finding the clitoris. <laughs> Which is why Jeremy went right to it. He's yeah. like, I gotta learn. <laughs> oh, oh, get get this. The, the column in Christianity today is called Hermeneutics. <laughs> the article is by Marlena Graves. It's an older article. I think part of the reason why it's popped back into the news recently is because of a response, maybe. Yeah, a response article that was written to it more recently, and this has all been circling around the internet again. So this passed our radar back in 2012 when it was first published, but I'm glad I got a chance to see it. It starts off with a, uh, it starts off with a therapist, a Christian therapist who uh, deals with different women in her office often saying that they struggle with masturbation. They masturbate regularly. They're trying to stop. That's a struggle. Yeah, apparently. In fact, she (laughs) says this particular therapist, uh, 13% of her caseload, is female students who are specifically looking for relief from, quote, addiction to masturbation. Uh-huh. So it's even being framed as an addiction. Uh, she notes that there's a bit of debate in the, in the conservative Christianity community over whether or not it should be considered a sin or not. Uh, she quotes Mark Driscoll saying that masturbation is self-pleasure done in isolation that is usually accompanied by unbiblical lust. And says that that's that's the main sinful component. It really cannot be done without lust, hmm. and so therefore it, it is it is categorically a sin. Uh, she mentions other places like 
uh, believe it or not, focus on the family. We've mentioned this on the show before, too. Focus on the family actually has a somewhat sane position on masturbation. They just, they I'm just skeptical. don't feel like they want to make it an issue. No, Dobson has made comments like that before about the development of children and it's uh-huh. natural for them to touch themselves. I'm sure that at some point he says something ridiculous about it. <laughs> but he's yeah. he seemed to be a little more thoughtful than your average fundamentalist. On or maybe they just figure on a practical level you're never going to rub it out. So, yes, so she notices uh, this kind of Distinction, but uh, the therapist ends up taking this take that sexuality is designed for the relationship. She says, masturbation, in contrast, most often isolates and drives a person away from real relating to other people. Sex is supposed isn't supposed to be all about me. She says it's supposed to be part of the give and take of an interpersonal relationship. But it's interesting her theory as to why women have struggles with masturbation and she clearly feels that it's different it's a different scenario for women than it is for men quoting another christian therapist a leading sex addiction therapist women who masturbate are often using it to self-soothe in response to negative emotions like feeling undesired and unwanted i know women who struggle with masturbation because they fantasize about being wanted If they were in a sexual relationship in the past, they were awakened to how their bodies can feel and they masturbate to rekindle that feeling of being wanted by that man or by any man in general. It helps them uh, fight the loneliness of not being in a relationship. Again, this this kind of notion that the natural state is for a woman to be in a relationship and if she's not experiencing that, yeah. They may have also experienced touch during play with friends that made them curious or they might have been abused. Now, one thing that I like about this author is she's saying that we shouldn't make these women feel ashamed about what they're doing. They should be able to talk about this open and honestly. Mm -hmm. Even if she does maintain that it's a sin and it needs to go away, she wants to see a supportive environment for uh, people to talk about these things. You know, I like the the tone of the piece, but it's very interesting that – she, she makes the statement, for them, I imagine, and other women, masturbation, masturbation is about much more than sheer pleasure and has to see it as this product of a potentially abuseful relation, abusive relationship in the past or trying mm. to find satisfaction in a man. It's yeah, always, it can't just be that they have a sex It's drive. always psychological, some sort of inferiority that the woman <clears throat> feels yeah. that's compelling her to do this. Uh, thankfully, and this was the response article, that I was mentioning earlier, uh, posted just a couple of weeks ago by Jordan Mong. Uh, The Real Problem with Female Masturbation is the name of the article, again, in hermeneutics. She starts off her piece very sensibly. Unfortunately, too often, she says, the conversation doesn't overcome the unhelpful stereotypes about female sex drive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Time and time again, Christian leaders explain that women masturbate because they want to fill a void I I think that kind of goes without saying. But then she goes on and says, uh, or they have attachment issues. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) If he can say we're not going to rub it out, I can say. No, no, no. I just feel like it was completely over loop there. I I don't get that. I don't get that one. (laughs) When men talk about masturbation, she says everyone pretty much settles on the basics. It's hard to practice self-control. A few men try to psychoanalyze the process. But then she goes on to talk about how it's quite different for women here. And she says, Christians remain uncomfortable with the idea of women possessing sexual desire. 
even as they talk about the ideal Christian woman woman being a steamy hot wife, willing to fulfill her husband's every desires by not depraving depriving him once married, we don't want to imagine that the wife has a libido. The doublespeak here, that women are supposed to be simultaneously sexually adventurous, available, and willing, yet without possessing lust themselves, is an impossible contradiction to embody. It treats sex as, man, as man's playing field, reinforcing mm-hmm. the notion that women should cater to men's desires without possessing similar desires of their own. Which, which is harmful in an, an incredible number of ways. Yeah, so you could that that the traditional gender role stereotype is what it's called in the field that the endorsement that there's separate characteristics right. with men and women mm-hmm. that you know men are the aggressors, women are sort of basically goalkeepers to fend off attacks. That undercuts everything from gay marriage and the, one of their objections to same-sex parenting is that you need opposite-sex qualities in parenting. That's right. what they say, that you a man and a Which woman bring a different qualities. a binary of, of people. Right. So there's that. Uh, that. That leads to that sort of thing. And as well as it leads to this where you um, – the women exist as – a you know back to the Victorian times as this like chaste vesicle for men to basically procreate, and that it's the man's responsibility to be the aggressor, which you know which causes which basically forces women into one of two categories: the virgin horror complex. You're right, you're right. the virginal wife who's there to reproduce, or you're the uncontrolled hysterical libidinous yeah. you know whore, um, and. You, you, I was looking at other stories this week too that reflect that that exact same attitude. Where when the man strays or has like uh, inappropriate behavior, there's in some conservative Christian circles there's the undercurrent of blaming the woman that she didn't take care of his uh, desire that she should have been there. Um, I was looking at the um, there's a this Christian uh, magazine uh, it's called Charisma magazine. Have you mm-hmm. heard of that? There's a there was an article. Uh, by called um, How Women Can Make Church a Safe Place for Men by Dana Gresh. And it, just like it sounds, it's that it blames it, it puts the responsibility on women to not dress provocatively in church because they can't be they're, they're, they're going to be held responsible when men can't be expected to control their lust. You know, so if men have lustful thoughts, it's projected onto women as eliciting those thoughts. That's why you have to cover them up or mm-hmm. dress them in a sensible way or something like that. Um, and in it reminds me of another concept in, in, in therapy. In my therapy background, we talked about the reason people develop uh, compulsions is because they have what's called a thought-action fusion, mm-hmm. that the thought is equivalent to the action. Uh, you know, so like a sensible approach would be that everybody thinks lustful thoughts and, 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 and it's as long as you don't act on them is what the, the distinction is. Whereas uh, if you think that the thought is as bad as the action itself, that is lusting after a woman in your own heart, is equivalent, mm-hmm. is that's the sin, that, then that creates a, a process where people try to defend against the thought itself, which is obviously mm-hmm. impossible. You can't right. not think about a pink bear you know, when I say that. Pink bear. Oh, now I have to do my compulsions. <laughs> one, two, three, ABC. Hold on. One, two, three. Um, and so the, it leads to this OCD-like compulsion with, the, with like masturbation too. It's because mm-hmm. when they have this what we would label as being a you know a biologically driven sex drive. Yeah. When you try to put the kibosh on that and totally eliminate even thinking about it, obviously you lose control over the drive, mm-hmm. and so it yeah. becomes even worse. And I don't know what the figure was with like therapy. She said you said that the therapist was like a good proportion of her practices. Yeah. People, I'm doing air quotes, struggling with masturbation. Right. We saw that with our discussion of males Christians struggling with pornography. 
it's because they're trying to put this like this lid on so tight of yeah. not even thinking about it, and they redefine that as being an addiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, one of the articles we're going to be talking about later in the show today. Uh, this is a study in the Journal of Religious Health: Evangelicalism, Sexual Morality, and Sexual Addiction by Kalia Edgar talks about that very notion, the idea of, of this sexual addiction, and uh, there, there was a statistic there from Promise Keepers where something like 9 out of 10 men surveyed at Promise Keepers said that they had serious, serious problems with pornography, with, with sexual thoughts, and everything else. I went uh, to Promise Keepers. Did anybody else? No, I didn't. Wasn't it a big like stadium rally? Oh yeah, it was in Detroit. Oh, right. it was awesome. My my Not pastor really. actually mocked mocked it. His, he had a little song. Your pastor he, can shut his mouth. Yeah, he had a little song <laughs> that he would sing. Uh, I'm a promise keeper, so noble and so true. I decided to love my family. What a novel thing to do. <laughs> so we we were never a part of that, but uh, but I certainly had a lot of Christian peers who were, mm-hmm. and they they really felt yeah that this was a. A problem overcoming the church. And one of the debates in this paper is sexual addiction, is this a real thing that disproportionately affects religious people? Or is it just a way that, you know, when you have ordinary behaviors, but your theology prevents you from exercising them, is there this tendency to kind of pathologize these behaviors? Masturbation, rather than being just a normal thing that most people do, becomes an addiction kind of foreshadowing what we're going to be talking about later on the show that's not necessarily a mutually exclusive category right Mm -hmm. there could be this you could have these normal drives and urges that because you are treating them as pathologies that messes with your psychology or rather than running to you know running to the bathroom for five minutes and coming back so you can finally get some work done, <laughs> if you if you like quote struggle with that for hours and hours, <laughs> I'm not going to think about that. Oh, the computer's right there. I could call up a porn website rather than like normal males just getting it over with and then coming back and getting <laughs> exactly. work done. If, then they then they have to struggle with it. It adds hours of needless struggle. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and frustration. Yeah. Commending the woman who wrote this this response article on Christianity Today, this uh, Journal of Religious Health definitely backs up her assessment of what the evangelical world is like. Uh, Over and over again, they do surveys of the kind of popular literature that's out there available to Christians to deal with sexual addiction or these kind of matters. And they do see it almost entirely as it's the woman's fault for this. Uh, I'll quote the study real quick. In essence, the wife holds the responsibility for her husband's sexual satisfaction. One example from Tim LaHaye. Uh, uh, Tim LaHaye, the guy from the uh, Left Behind series, yeah, right? Yeah. In uh, The Act of Marriage, The Beauty of Sexual Love, he says that men's egos and strong sex t- drives are tied together, and a man will suffer from lowest self-esteem and become lazy if his wife does not continue to fulfill her husband's sexual, natural sexual needs. They cite other books where, quote, most evangelical sex manuals state that men cannot control their sexual desires without difficulty and that marriage is the appropriate way for men to, quote, channel their natural sexual energy to one appropriate woman. So this must and, be why uh, why they're against gay marriage because there's not this – this uh, demand and obligation relationship. Of, well, they, uh, no, seriously, they, that's what they portray. They're especially threatened by gay males because they view it as 
being like a uh, like, like who do you blame train, when you're not satisfied? A, a chain reaction. <laughs> Who's there's nobody there to put a brakes? And you no, they've actually said this. There's nobody there to put the brakes on sexuality, and oh that's why they God. stereotype them as being extra lustful and promiscuous <clears throat> because nobody's there to uh, the the woman's roles to sort of channel that sort of thing. Yeah. I saw this. There was actually an article when I was looking at some of the ones for today on the friendly atheist that caught my eye. I'm not in the Christian music scene, but apparently two Christian musicians oh who are married broke up. Uh, there's this I'm not familiar with them but Derek Webb and Sandra McCracken and they had released a statement to their fans that David took responsibility for something I guess it implied that he strayed from the marriage or something like that and so basically they publicized that it was that they were broken up and that it was primarily his fault but then a lot of the conservative blogs exploded Uh on her and they said things like, well, what was going on that she didn't, blah, blah, blah. And it, was, it sort of perf- perfectly illustrated what we're talking about where, where there's this thing like, yeah, bad guy, but then why did he stray? Right. You know, or uh, uh, the woman probably wasn't taking care of his needs. There's more to the story than that rather than just saying he did something that he shouldn't And I, I bet you a lot of the people picking on her were women too because this yeah. is written into the book's by women for women in this movement. Here's one example. Um, the Total Woman. How to Make Your Marriage Come Alive, written by a uh, self-described Christian feminist, says that women need to view sex in a positive way, but they need to do this by learning to become the objects of their husband's sexual fantasies. The idea is not (laughs) so Learning to become the objects. Yes, yes, actually, to cater to their fantasies. And the idea is that this will keep the husband sexually satisfied, and therefore he won't cheat. You mentioned that pastor, uh, Mark Driscoll. Didn't he get into trouble back about a half a dozen years ago for saying things like that, with that the wife, Christian wives don't keep themselves up enough? There was some sort of thing well, I remember saying. He said a lot of really stupid things over the years. Well, he said that, but basically it was in response to like another evangelical man having an affair in his congregation. And he said that uh, a lot of the times it's because the Christian wives let themselves go. Or I, I forget what his exact words were after wow. marriage. And that's, and that's sort of – he wasn't saying that the men were blameless, but he was saying that the wives did not help them by mm. not being sexually desirable. They weren't, they weren't keeping up their end of the bargain apparently. Yeah, of being an object. I feel bad for the women in these relationships because, of course, if they are supposed to just view themselves as his fantasy toy, mm-hmm. I mean, where do their where, yeah, where do their, their sexual needs get played? Yeah. But these manuals, they treat it uh, like, uh, for example, Dobson again. Uh, Dobson, uh, his idea is that sex preoccupies the man and love preoccupies the woman. All these issues in marriages are due to miscommunications between the woman's desire for love and the man's yeah. desire for sex. Which, by the way, isn't just insulting to women, of course. It's right. insulting to men to right. think it's that we're viewing just... viewing us as, yeah, single-dimensional beings, exactly. too. They can't handle androgyny and non, non-sex-typed non behavior is basically the theme here. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of whether or not sexual Christian sexual addiction is a real phenomenon that disproportionately affects Christians over, say, uh, uh, other people, yeah. that there are there are nevertheless ways in which this kind of understanding of the sexual roles of men and women can lead to very unhealthy relationships. And in fact, that's uh, what our next "God Thinks Like You" segment is going to be about. Uh, we pre-recorded this one, so you're going to hear Dave. Uh, Fletcher. This was uh, recorded for a previous episode, but the episode ran long and we didn't have time to include it. So we're going to share it with you now. And uh, we will warn you ahead of time that this is probably one of the more disturbing stories we've ever talked about the podcast. So some listeners may want to tune out. But here you go. This week's God Thinks Like You. 
We're going to start this God Thinks Like You by introducing you to a very interesting person. Um, This fellow's name is Chad Curtis. If you've ever heard of Chad Curtis before, it might be because you're a sports fan. Which Uh, is why I had not heard of him. Yeah. (laughs) Me either. A major league baseball player. He played for about 10 years before retiring and uh, played for a variety of different teams, including the Yankees. He was actually instrumental in a couple of uh, World Series wins for the Yankees. In 1999, he caught the game-winning home run Mm -hmm. in the World Series against, or I mean, he made the game-winning home run in the World Series against the Braves. He later caught the last out of the last World Series of the 20th century. He was not a poor baseball player. No, he was a good baseball player. Definitely had a name uh, because he was a conservative Christian and often would make strong moral stands for certain things in athletics. He became kind of a media darling of the Christian right because like Tim Tebow? a bit yeah. he would he would write publicly about you know needing to avoid the kind of hedonistic temptations that other athletes have to face and uh, or He'd throw out pornography that they had hidden in the locker yep. room he See, was notorious for that he uh, turn off Jerry Springer when mm-hmm. they were watching it before <laughs> it came. right uh, he created a big a big stir in two thousand when uh, the Cisco. Th- Thong song yes, was playing, and thong, he thong, thong, thong. got upset and shut it off in the locker room, and and apparently it almost almost came to blows there with were another player. Present, and- but of course he'd immediately go out to the media and trash his fellow players hmm. about how immoral they were. You know, in Christian circles, was celebrated as a hero. You know, here's somebody standing up for Christian values. Uh, not only that, but he gave half of his profits to groups like Focus on the Family, various different anti-abortion groups, uh, appeared to be kind of the model Christian athlete. That was the legend of Chad Curtis when I met him at Cornerstone University when I was studying there to become a teacher because he had retired and had wanted to become a teacher, a phys ed teacher and a coach. And continue, you know, spreading the gospel. And he's a local. He he was born and raised in West Michigan, right? Local so he came to back this area here after he left. Uh, could have moved anywhere, but came back home to contribute to his community. With this kind of reputation, major league athlete, media darling of the religious right, that sort of thing, you would expect people on campus to absolutely love this guy, right? Yeah, it's Cornerstone, so right. yeah, it's right in their ballpark. People so hated Chad Curtis. Really? <laughs> Teachers hated him. Students hated him. Every conflict I ever remember happening in classes, like where things broke out into a verbal fight among students, Chad was usually instigating it in some sort of way. He was a moralizer, you know. Mm-hmm. He liked to identify who was not being compliant with the group norms, and he would read scriptures to them. He would attack them in class. Like some of the instances I remember was uh, a young student just saying that she enjoyed yoga classes, and he chimes in saying that this is of the devil, that this is making uh, – basically that comes from Eastern religion, and Christians shouldn't have any association with – and this is you a know. conservative university, a conservative yeah. college. And presumably a girl who was not practicing yoga for any spiritual purposes. Well, and that was her point. She was yeah. saying essentially this is just stretching. Yeah. It's a fun kind of artful way of stretching. It involves focusing on your body and breathing. And she was saying there's nothing wrong with that because I'm not doing any of the religious aspects yeah. 
of yogic training. I, and he blew this into a big, you know, moral cause, how she is undermining the church's mission. So it was that kind of stuff. Like a fun guy to be around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was so rude and, you know, confrontational about it, seeking people out that, yeah, he ended up alienating a lot of people who might have otherwise been his friends there. Apparently, that's the story of his whole career. Why mm-hmm. did he jump around from team to team so much? It's because the players couldn't stand him. They just got sick of him. The yeah. management, everyone just got fed up with it him wherever he was. continued when he started his teaching career, mm-hmm. He uh, he, which this is funny. Dave and I have been substitutes teachers, and yeah. we're probably familiar with most of these people. But um, his first job was with Caledonia High School as their phys just ed coach. Him, and actually. yeah. And lasted two years because getting in everybody's face. I wonder if she knew him. He was even rejected from uh, North Point Christian School. At least he believes because he was enforcing the class dress code. Yes, which was specifically about girls not having low-cut shirts. So apparently there were a few violators that the school didn't think it was that big of a deal, but he really pressed the issue. And and, uh, yeah, he was going to stand up for the right thing to do and even his – Christian contemporaries were like, no, you can go find a job somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Actually, this obsession with dress codes is something I observed quite a bit. When I was at Cornerstone, I was in the education program, and we had uh, many classes in common and sometimes worked on group projects together. A friend of his was uh, a a friend of mine at Grace Bible College, so I ended up, through a mutual friend, working with him quite a bit. One of the things I noticed was... There's this area, there's this lobby on the second floor by all the social studies classrooms mm-hmm. where I would just sit and have my breaks and take notes and stuff. He frequent, frequented this area. What he would do is he would stand at the top of the staircase and when a young woman would go by who was wearing a tank top or a short skirt or something, he would then pursue them. He would follow her from the top of the stairs to her classroom reading scriptures to her about being modest mm. asking you know do you think you're serving the lord the way with the way you're dressed and you know by the time he was told to piss off mm-hmm. he would turn around and go back to the to the stairway and find, someone else and to find somebody else to do it sometimes he would just stand there and comment on them as they went by like this was something he went out of his way to do that's what he did was for fun. to target was young women time. on their which is why I, you know, told my wife, who was also in classes, like, stay away from this guy. There is something creepy about him mm-hmm. in particular that I don't, you know very obsessed with women's attire. Yes. Um, a lot of people were aware and wary of how obsessed he was about that particular issue. And he's in the education department. This is a guy who's studying to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Do we need more red flags? I mean, well, and that's where this story is going. Um, he had a good feel for his line of work. A good feel. Uh, There's no good way to say that. Yeah. Um, the reason why we're talking about this gentleman is because uh, recently he was convicted of molesting three girls in the schools where he would work, facing a 7 to 15-year uh, sentence for that. Which He's appealing it. Not nearly high enough for serial molestation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, but maybe that's just me. But I feel like if you're someone who has done this multiple times with young girls, I mean, 16, I think, was the oldest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, These were all underage girls. I feel well, and of course, he'll be registered as a sex offender for the rest of his life and all of that. But 
In his case, I'm happy about it. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Little disclaimer. I'm going to talk about his crimes and how they happen. Usually it was something kind of saucy of this sort. I wouldn't get into the into the sensational details. But when you actually read the accounts, the testimony that these girls gave uh, uh, about Chad Curtis, I think it's very revealing yes. into the, the psychology of this person and how he used the kind of trust that people had in him as a religious role model I, I think and a moral person, how he used this – to actually uh, help him prey on these young girls. The, the most disturbing part about this, I think, is the things he would say during and after the fact because the manipulation is truly horrifying. Mm-hmm. The article I'm reading is from sportsonearth.com, uh, How Chad Curtis Went from Hero to Convict by Greg Hanlon. It's a really well-written article. I mean yeah, it's it a is. good piece of I journalism. I don't think I have ever in my life read an article from this website and I I got about halfway through and I was like, what website is this from? Oh can, my god, it's sports. Can I just say that uh, as, as someone who's not into sports, I'm continually surprised by how well-written a lot of sports coverage is. I, I It there's goes against my stereotypes. Who are but, very, very good. Well, there's another article about yeah. him that does nothing to do with the specifics on one of the Sports Illustrated things just about how he the guys that he was on a team with about how when yeah. he said he how he irritated them with his yeah. proselytizing and how they were shocked when all this had come out. I think because, it was on Fox Sports actually because it was but. you know uh, he had painted a picture of moral rectitude mm-hmm. that yeah. was direct opposition to his. A lot of his teammates point out how self-serving his moralizing was. It was often to kind of advance his own reputation. In fact, like, the judge pointed out calling, a similar. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Well, we should say what so, did he do? Yes. So Sorry. let's let's get into this. The article uses aliases for the girls. So in 2010, I guess one of the first accusers was the girl that will be referred to as Kayla. Uh, she was 15 years old. She was actually a friend of Chad Curtis's daughter, who was the, the same age. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I believe they went to the same church. He um, has six children. Yeah, six children. They all have first names that begin in C. So, which another red flag? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that's adorable, right? They're all they're all have the same initials CC. The whole family. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that mm-hmm. devoted to Christ. And they uh, always copy each other on each other's emails. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> um, so he's substitute teaching at Lakewood High School. He's volunteering in the weight room, and uh, this girl Kayla. Who's you know already knows her is uh, she's a sophomore. She's interested in sports. She wants to pursue a sports scholarship, and she's having trouble with her hip flexors. So as a, I'm not even sure what that is. <laughs> That's the muscle that extends your leg out laterally to the side. I don't have one of those. <laughs> and you know one of the one of the ways that you massage such a thing would be putting pressure in that area and extending the leg through its range of motion until the the you know whatever the tightness in the muscle releases so it's it's kind of it involves putting your hands very close to genitalia and stuff uh but you could do it in a purely clinical way there's nothing you know necessarily wrong with that massage procedure and so when he offers to do this for Kayla uh his daughters are with him mm-hmm. in the room so it doesn't seem like this big threatening thing. Like yeah. he's performed this on his d- daughters as well. They're present. They're not alone. And so, yeah, whatever. It's a kind of a clinical sports massage situation. 
what's interesting is how he starts making this more private. Over the days and weeks, the article says, they, the venue moved first to a room adjacent to the weight room, then downstairs to the windowless trainer's room. You know, he's gradually, nobody's around, getting her in a more isolated situation. And this is his M.O. Yes. He, he does it again and again. We later learn that this has been a yeah. constant thing. And we call her out of class, other teachers' yep. classes to come and yeah. do the rehab. Pretty soon starts pulling him out of class. Yeah. Which you got to think the teachers should have noticed yeah. something at that point. It, it does seem like there's a real failing amongst uh, some of the his coworkers. Again, though, I mean, I, well, I think it's irresponsible. Yeah. Part of the point – of our discussion today is that people didn't see this coming from him because he set himself up as such a moral authority on things. But people were very slow to realize the victims say that as they are being assaulted yes. by him. Mm-hmm. Mm. Kayla's testimony, she says things like, he'd touch all around my leg, he'd touch up near my hip bones and inside of my hip bones. The whole time he's saying things to her like, relax, you're too tense. And he's gradually escalating where he's going. He would have her remove her shirt so she would just be in a sports bra. Here's what Kayla is saying while this – what she's thinking during this process. This is all coming from court testimonies. I'm uncomfortable but I don't say anything because in my head I'm going through all the talks that he had in class about how he was such a Christian guy. And so I was like, don't think there's something happening here that's not. You know, Don't offend him. So she's worried about, you know, this seems inappropriate, but it's not. He's a good Christian guy. Right. So the feelings on her part that she's having these feelings when they're really – it's a, you know, platonic issue. He's found a a really devious approach Mm -hmm. to this. During one of these sessions then, he suddenly jumps onto the table and is straddling her. Again, she's saying that – Okay, he's just trying to have a better angle at massaging my abdomen, like trying to rationalize and figure out why this is an innocent thing. And, of course, the other very clever but creepy thing that he is doing is each step of the way, he's continually asking her, is this okay? He's getting permission. So, in other words, he's getting permission from her. Then he moves to the bra and begins removing that. At this point, you know, you really see the moral dilemma going on in her mind. I'm trying to rationalize why he could think it's okay to do that. I was trying to figure out how it could be better for me as an athlete because that was the idea of this massage. And I couldn't figure out how to make that make sense. And I wanted to say something, but I couldn't even open my mouth to say anything about it. Testimony in the trial from Jim Cottrell, Vice President of Counseling Services at Grand Rapids YMCA, talking about tonic immobility. Is this? Uh, yeah, often when people are being sexually assaulted, they freeze. Uh, and, you know, there's speculation about the part of the body's defense system of, like, if this is happening, that maybe you should just freeze so and it's minimize kind of paralysis. Your more, But sometimes just, people report later on that they felt that they sort of couldn't do anything or that they were watching themselves separately, almost dissociating and things like that. Yeah, which is uh, during the headlines. And he says, especially common with children in instances like this. So that is not her consenting by not fighting back. That is her body shutting down to spare itself. Exactly. And you could see from her inner monologue at this time how she's, well, anyways. So she knows something wrong has happened and she's getting ready to confront it. And to much to her surprise, he comes in and kind of preempts the apology, uh, says, uh, 
Kayla, we need to talk. Something went terribly wrong. Let me just read the article's characterization of it. Out came a rambling quasi-apology. There were compliments. She's a hard worker. She's a moral person. She reminds him of his daughters. Creepy. Mm-hmm. Quoted Bible verses and acknowledgments tinged with self-serving error. He said it was the most unfaithful he'd ever been to his wife. Now remember that because mm-hmm. that becomes important later. He made frequent use of the conspiratorial we when discussing the incident and yeah. framed it as a teachable moment for both of them. Uh, so both to blame. As mm-hmm. Kayla characterized it, like it was a lesson for the two of us. He somehow worded it, whereas it was wrong, but it wasn't too wrong. And yes, like this, we did something that was wrong. We did. We made a mistake. We have to deal with the consequences. We, yeah. He right. said he had an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, and that it was an inner struggle that he needed to take these thoughts captive – kind of referencing a Bible verse there and just throw him out. Mm. And then he asked Kayla if she was a virgin. Which is a bizarre thing to bring into this conversation. Mm-hmm. But she still accepted his apology. Yep. And, and believed that it wouldn't happen again. So it doesn't happen for a while until two weeks later. Uh, they're back in the trainer's room. On Curtis- Labor Day, because this is it's a day that they don't have school, so there's mm-hmm. very few people there. But, of course, real athletes don't take a day off was – essentially what he had told them. So she's there. She's working. And again, he's using the same methods, this time probing around her body saying, does this hurt? Does this hurt? But as an excuse to slowly work off her clothing. And this is where she says, you know, she's really starting to get frightened. Uh, She quoted in court, she said he she caught a glimpse of his eyes and they looked animalistic or demonic. And this is when he actually penetrates her with his finger. And begins, yes, begins kissing her breasts and stuff. So it's pretty clear where it's gone at this point. She says no at this point, quoting the article. It was making eye contact with Curtis and seeing a man she had once revered as a moral authority shamefully slink down into a chair, quote, like a little kid when you slap their hand, that sent her into convulsions bawling. It's the hardest she ever cried. The first thing that came to her mind was what happened uh, was some sort of test. So again, she's still trying to rationalize this. And remember, for this girl, right, she's friends with the family and everything. This is not – she can't just accuse this guy of wrongdoing without destroying her – one of her friends' esteem for her own father and that sort of thing. I mean this does a lot of pressure on her. So here's what she thinks is this was some sort of test of her morality. That she hadn't passed and she's crying and saying this. And uh, yes, again, at, at trial, it's this is not uncommon for sexual abusers, uh, abuse victims to feel this way, that they are somehow at fault for what happened. And he also – he has another talk with her yeah, explaining what would happen if she told anyone and she says, quote – He's like, if you go to the police, he's like, I will lose my job. His Mm -hmm. wife will be extremely hurt, and I probably won't see my kids again. But Kayla, that's not your fault. I made this decision, and there are consequences I have to deal with. Isn't that great? He's so noble, he's willing to take responsibility Mm -hmm. for this. But you do know what's going to happen to me if this happens, right? And then he asks her to pray with him. Yeah, yeah. And she's she, like, tearfully confesses that she thought she was being tested and failed the test and he says kayla you're wrong you did pass you have to understand that so he's spinning this out as like good for you yeah he also this is the most 
disgusting part, I think. After they've had this discussion and prayed together, he then um, calls to her again and asks her, quote, did you enjoy any of that? Mm-hmm. And when she says no, he says, well, good. Now that I know if you ever get into a situation with a boy, you'll be able to make an excuse or go home or something like that. So in other words, he's just, he's just training her for what will happen when a boy tries this. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? I mean for him to take that, that moral charge. And he says that you know, confronting him was a step in the right direction for her. Yeah. You know, like, good job. You're- I mean, just, the like, varsity-level manipulation mm-hmm. here is mm-hmm. just – now. and this yeah. is a very strong young woman, too, that she did try to confront him. She did eventually come forward and say something. How many people out there didn't? Right, come yeah. out and say something. Yeah. Well, it turned out that uh, there were a lot actually that yeah. didn't. Yeah, so the, the account is that the other people apparently during this whole time had been having the same thing. There was this girl Jessica who it's again we don't need to repeat the sexual crimes. It was the exact same, same method of operation. The but uh, I suppose the one difference is that the two were actively texting, and yes. there are at least hints that this girl had attraction for him. And, uh, for example, she sent a text at some point saying, like, we could be a thing or something to that level. And he starts saying, you can't text me because my wife will find out about this and be pissed off. So apparently there's, you know. But there was a lot of deleted text, though, too. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't. They don't know what was in the deleted text. So he's apparently trying to seek out some sort of relationship or not it's not clear. Um, yeah, and regardless of whether or not she had a crush on him or whatever it is, she is well, a right. child and mm-hmm. she is an adult who's in direct mm-hmm. authority mm-hmm. over her. This is not bla- – yeah, I hope nobody interpreted that as There's blaming no. the – but I think this is what Curtis was seeking out Absolutely. is girls yeah. who would go along mm-hmm. and he was testing the waters and – you know, push that – Athlete, he could push that good right. Christian. He could push all of that stuff and find I mean, the girls that. Yeah, we later find out he's doing this over and over and over again. What is he looking for if not a partner that will engage in this with him? But yet he's framing it in a way that he has these outs in case it doesn't work out to his the way he desires it. So yeah, uh, pulling her out of uh, gym class for the same things, getting involved in her relationship with her boyfriend as far as saying negative things about the boyfriend. You deserve better than him. All all of this classic predatory stuff. And then we get to the third girl, Alexis. But Alexis was kind of feeling that this was disturbing to begin with. And And while this Alexis girl is going through the same thoughts Kayla does and everything, something... Interesting happens. A student comes down towards the weight room. They hear the jangling of the keys, and he freaks the fuck out. <laughs> the student doesn't see anything yeah. except that he is that, – right. that Chad Curtis is panicking. And for Alexis, this is enough to snap her into awareness like, yeah, I'm right about this. This is not good. This is not just a massage. You know, she ended up reporting it. Now, was Alexis the first one to report? I believe that's when – this became public and people became aware of uh, uh, allegations against him. And as is so often the case, and hey, guys, this is West Michigan we're talking about. Who did they uh, lash out against? Not the predatory uh, serial molester, 
but his victims. Yeah. And Curtis is interesting because he's he has this epic view of a conspiracy. He he told the reporter for this piece that the first accusation broke on his third year old's birthday. birthday the yeah. second accusation on his eleven year old's birthday. And then he was rest, arrested on the day of his 19-year-old daughter's graduation. Mm-hmm. And he says, now, is that coincidental or is that someone looking at your personal file and deciding to mess with you? Well, when you have six kids. Have, the base rate is so high with six kids in events. Yeah. That, and yeah. and <laughs> with that many you know, instances and that birthdays, he's – anniversaries yeah. and uh, the, the, article, the article points out that uh, of the five girls that, that did eventually – uh, mm-hmm. Accuse him and, and, and pursue that. Uh, they didn't know each other. Yeah, right. This, these were independent and confirmations of the same behavior with the same individual. The idea that these girls yeah. all got together and you know they yeah. had been spurned by this guy, so they were going to take him down. All completely independent of each other. Yeah, um, that's what they were trying to make it out to be. Is these? This is. Uh, in fact, he even says that to the reporter when yep. when they start talking about it. He says, "Have you ever seen that uh, movie, Pretty Little Liars?" TV show. TV show, sorry. My daughter watches it. And, like, that's how he started framing that. These girls are pretty little liars in a conspiracy to take down the great Christian man. And, in fact, the, the, the grandiose terms he uses are shocking sometimes. Like, he, he says, you know, they, uh, Jesus was a perfect person and they crucified him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Implying, like, yeah, he's being crucified for his great morality. Uh, but yeah, as as pointed out, these girls did not know each other, and as the details started leaking out, right, uh, the same things popped up time and time again. Uh, one of the girls after Kayla that he made a move on, he had said to her the the same thing. This is the closest, you know, we did something wrong, and this is the closest I've ever come to cheating it, on his and wife. And in this case, it was him putting. Uh, she was had babysat his children. And or was babysitting his children, and she had gotten sunburned, so he rubbed yeah. suntan lotion over her, and including inappropriately um, on her breasts. Now, the really interesting moment here happens when he was interviewed by the police about this. Yeah, they ask him about this girl Rachel, who was the um, the one in question, and um, they asked him about it. He said, "Quote: I don't think she's a liar, and I don't think I'm a liar either." But the article says what really tripped his mental wiring was a question about lotion. Uh, When the prosecutor mentioned – or the officer, I guess, mentioned the word lotion, Curtis announced that he was nauseous, got up out of his chair, and lay on the floor for close to two minutes. Weird. It's a really awkward silence. Didn't really know what was going on, uh, he says. And then when he – when Curtis composes himself, gets back up, he says, I guess you can just say that I'm – I'm hurt and confused. I try to pour my time and energy into helping kids. Yeah. Well, what was really going on is he was realizing just how much evidence they had on him. All this stuff he thought that the prosecutors had no clue about. He's suddenly realizing, oh, my gosh, when the babysitter's been over, when this other girl went on a family vacation with them. That he laid in the bed with her. Yeah, yeah. On top of the sheets and stuff, but creepy, you know, just trying to... Not appropriate. Speaking as someone who has teenage girls and they have friends over, if they woke up and I was laying on the bed with them, uh, that would 
that would not mm. go well. You know? So I think the lotion thing is the moment that he realizes how well corroborated yes. all these, these witnesses are and that he's not going to be able to defend himself. But yes, let's look at the community's reaction. I mm. <laughs> um, have to. It's so sad. Well, this is maybe the most important story for people to hear, right? Yeah, it really is. We can't prevent uh, these things from happening all the time, but we can look at how the community tries to shame the victim. If you look at the article, by the way, the listeners can see a picture of the prayer circles that the community formed outside. I don't know if it was the court or whatever like that, that they were supporting him in their prayer circles. The comments on the initial articles about this were stuff like, I bet you some girl tried to seduce him and he turned her down. Or he's a former L- uh, major league ball player with two world titles. Uh, there's no teenage girl he would go after. Use common sense. Or the idea that that people were just he had all this money from his sports career, so they're, right. just, so they're trying to get him. Which they're just trying to. In fact, doesn't. Yeah. But and all these people come out from the community that uh, as integrity witnesses to his integrity. Forty character witnesses he wanted yeah. to have at his trial. Things, seeing things like he's morally flawless. Yeah, I mean that that to me is another big red flag. I don't know that anyone in my life would describe me as flawless. Um, <laughs> even the people that Dave, like me. I think you're morally flawless. Well, thank you. Um, but any time and maybe. Maybe that's just confirmation bias on my point. Anytime someone seems uh, too good for to be believed, they probably are. But you know, that's just the kind of the community's reaction. Then it starts hitting the school, right? Mm-hmm. Where Alexis and Kayla and some of these other victims are, you know, begin to be personally harassed. Alexis reports saying, I got really depressed because everyone started treating me differently. Her volleyball teammates wouldn't even talk to her. She wouldn't be able to find a partner in those classes. Basically, the community came out to support the molester because they couldn't accept that he had done all these things. The one girl, Alexis, it was the same MO. And and here, as he was massaging her buttocks, she was also a very religious girl. So this is not someone who's out to get him because, you know, he likes Jesus, so let's take him down. As he was molesting her, he was lecturing her about how to prove to an atheist that God exists. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just combining these things into a... Well, and he had prayed with the victims yeah. afterwards. They should and put that in God is not dead movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A professor has a sports trainer at the school. And yeah. Have him That'll be the sequel. We'll, we'll end with what happened at the trial. After all this comes out, you know, they get to make statements at the very end. Hey, after he's been convicted. Yeah. Which, yes, thankfully, there's the upshot. He was convicted. Um, He is appealing the conviction. And interestingly, I thought this uh, article uh, where he was interviewed for the article, he did so without his lawyer's permission, which um, is probably not a good move on his part. Well, and that's the thing is – Good for keeping him in jail. He can't figure out if he's going to deny or confess to these things because he wants to portray it as, yeah, he made some mistakes – but at the same time, there was nothing inappropriate he, about those mistakes. And he's the victim here. I mean, what is it? Are you the molester or or are they just making up these charges? Yeah. Kayla in particular is, was probably the most traumatized by this. She's the one he actually penetrated and tried to push it all the way with. Her father reported that she's not able to sleep by herself. She oh, yeah. continually tries to come into mom and dad's bed at night because she doesn't feel safe. And so she has to testify in court all this stuff in front of – in front of uh, Curtis. Over 130 right. people with, in the 
people who are mostly supporters of Curtis there or a good mm-hmm. a good portion of them. And then this is what she has to listen to from him afterwards when he gets to make his final statement. Well, Kayla first said this. Uh, she got her moment to speak to him. And Kayla said, there was a time I believed you to be a man of high morals and integrity. That time is long gone. Now, a little over two years later, I have a better view of who you really are. You are a manipulator and a perpetual liar. And then Kayla's father adds, you used her devout faith against her. You blasphemed. You self, your self-serving actions included using God as your shield, allowing to, you to garner support from other Christians. I'm, I'm kind of glad that they got a chance to yeah. tell him yeah. off like that. And Alexis said to him, you know what you did, but you let us girls be put through this embarrassment of a trial and be humiliated on the stand. We didn't ask for this. You chose to put us through this. We shouldn't be treated like outcasts because of your selfish actions. And then he did not get a chance to testify during the trial, which Mm -hmm. is probably the only smart thing his attorney did. But Um, yet he's using that as the basis of his mistrial. Exactly. He's saying uh, that he was not uh, represented – uh, well, so he's got a new lawyer now, but he's but spoke. this guy can't keep his mouth shut. He would he Which would destroy himself if college, he got on. Yeah, right? I know. I mean, this is this is nothing new. He spoke for fifty five minutes when it was oh. his turn to make a statement. During this time, he became lightheaded and asked for a glass of water before continuing. And the prosecutor described his statement as being quote the most selfish, self serving victim-blaming statement I've ever heard in my career as a prosecutor. And I, you know, usually with a prosecutor, I would, you know, say he has a vested interest, but when you read portions of what he said, I tend to agree with the assessment. He said he prayed for the girls, the prosecutor, and the judge. He said he was, quote, a servant as opposed to a selfish person. Uh, He said he wakes up every day and asks God, what would you have me do? And God, how can I be a positive influence on others and be about building your kingdom? He also addressed each of the girls directly. He said to Jessica that she had invented, quote, fake type injuries as an excuse to go see him and added, quote, I didn't touch Jessica for my sexual purposes. I tried to touch Jessica mentally and emotionally for her benefit and physically for her benefit. Jessica left the courtroom at hearing this. Curtis said after her, I hope that's hard for you, and I hope that from that hardness she says what is true. Yeah. He goes on to say, spoke to Kayla directly too. Uh, He said that in order to maintain proper boundaries between the two of them, he had recruited her older brother to coach sixth grade football uh, with him. Uh, quote, having him around a little bit more would be good accountability for her and myself. So why is he even bother denying it if he's saying stuff like this? He needs extra but, accountability to control himself? No, see, it's in her brother's situation. fault, too. Yeah, Because right. if he had been around more, they'd have been more accountable. It was something that needed to be controlled. We came to the conclusion that we, again, he's using that we, needed to stay out of a situation where we could be tempted to fall into a situation that wouldn't be good for either of us. And then he said that he hopes one day he and Kayla, quote, could write a book together someday, and it would be to the positive benefit of millions of people. This man is so delusional. That was was breathtaking. So that's 
the long and the short of it. Hopefully, he does get to speak in court next time because I think if he does, oh, yeah. it will uphold his sentence. His um, lawyer's not going to let him talk. I doubt they'll I even pick sure it. I doubt they'll even pick up the appeal. But so, what does this have to do with God thinks like you? Where, where does this get us? The email I sent out to my fellow doubtcasters when wanting to cover this is, I, you know, I really feel uncomfortable talking about something in such graphic detail about these victims on the show because it is kind of – it's the stuff that scandalous headlines are made out of. But when you look at it, it's a really interesting view and how this stuff happens yeah. behind the scenes. You wonder how abusers could not reveal their victims for so long. Why don't people stand up for themselves? How does the community end up supporting these creeps? We get an inside look with this, exactly how he went manipulating these people and deluding himself perhaps as to what his true intentions were. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the more interesting thing about you know, this one thing to say that somebody's life is is consciously a lie where they're saying, you know, I don't really believe in all this religious moral stuff, mwahaha, I'll just fake it. Mm-hmm. What's more interesting is the self-deception. Yeah. We've gone on about this show before about things like stereotypes in the general public about atheist and morality and Christian morality, like the Jesus fish study and whatnot. But those things are internalized as well. And so, you know, some people have stereotypes about how they ought to be. You know, in other words, if you have a stereotype that since Christians are more moral and I'm a Christian, therefore this, these actions that I'm performing must be in the service of some sort of moral good. One way to look at this, I guess, if you're into psychology, would be a classic reaction formation. If you're familiar with the Freudian defense mechanisms, if you find something about yourself that's unacceptable, you tend to double down in the opposite direction. So obviously people here, we've talked about stories before where people have you know, suppressed homosexual ministers who are found Ted trolling, yeah, all over the place, you know, trolling gay bathhouses, the mm-hmm. things like that. And we can look at that and say well, there's a classic case study where somebody's by the process of being, I would never do that, I consider that anathema, and yet I am that. They're sort of forced to put a lid on it so tight that it comes out in all these unacceptable ways. Whereas mm-hmm. if they just would have been like, maybe I'm gay or that, and then they would have control yeah. over it. One of these psych studies that we were looking at suggested that it's it's not just like this buildup of pressure type of thing. It's, it's you know, and it has to be released in some sort of sexually deviant behavior. But it was more like it kind of sets up a causal process by which these people can exercise their desires or try to fulfill their desires in bad ways. Because if you have to start doing things in secret, for example, that could escalate. You have no way to outwardly express your sexual feelings or enjoy pornography or whatever, entertain an open marriage. So people, they get accustomed to then looking for these opportunities to fulfill their desires in secret. And this kind of starts this process. It's a cycle. Because when yeah. you look at somebody that's that morally rigid, then you have to ask yourself, what function is the moral rigidity serving? That is, why can't it be more flexible? It, you know, that clearly he's set himself up these st- impossible standards on others. You know, and there you get into the similarity between a reaction formation and then a projection. Seeing it, yeah. also, your culture is dirty. Those girls are dirty with their cleavage at school. I have to correct them. 
you know, it's it's all uh, in service of putting his own desires. So when I was watching Curtis stalk these girls walking up the stairway, what I was watching was him fighting his own desires in a strange kind of way. Sure, and there are other studies like to get away from the Freudian stuff where sex offenders, particularly ones, uh, and the one I'm going to talk about is religious professional sex offenders like abusing priests, use what we would call cognitive distortions or ways to, I guess, they're sort of rationalizations as well. There was a study that was done in 2003 uh, of religious professionals who were caught sexually abusing children. There's like a treatment program for them, priests, ministers, and this things like that. This has got to be a vicars. very small sample size. Yeah, it was only, I think they had a, a, about a dozen priests and a vicar and some missionaries. And what so they, only the ones that have actually... <laughs> Been, uh, prosecuted yeah, they were in a treatment the program, yeah. so they had clearly been caught and identified and then sentenced to the treatment or, or given to the treatment. And so the, uh, the study looked at how they categorize how, to, how their religion was integrated with their distortions of the way that they viewed things. So, for example, before you offend, a pre-offense rationalization is often things like, I will, nobody will ever suspect me because I'm a priest. Everything that I, since I'm moral and religious, everything that I do is must be correct uh, and right. Or during the offense, they'll often rationalize it by uh, saying uh, similar things too, like I'm a helper. I'm only trying to help them because I'm religious or because this is my function. And like so what Curtis I'm, was just preparing Kayla to deal with boys. Who yeah. try to get in her pants yeah. by being a boy who tried to get into her pants. And often pedophiles will, will use that as a rationalization of instructing the child. In sex or things like that. Like if you ever read Lolita, Umpert, oh, Umpert's, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, his rationalizations are beautiful in that way because he See, always like, she did it to me or she's seducing me and I'm just it teaching really, her. I, it really is a phenomenal book. Um, and I know a lot of people are phenomenally creepy. Yeah, yes, it is. But it I is mean, well it's, written. It's, because it's, you're seduced it's very by the, well the, the, the narrator. Exactly. You're yeah. like, oh, he's a nice because guy. Because it's, it's uh, his perspective. You have yeah. the ultimate he's flawed a, narrator. I, I'm more well creeped out by people who don't get the point of the book right. and tend to take he's, the narrator as telling the truth. You like yeah. him. And then you realize, yeah. you know, that's his monologue that he seduces them. Uh, but so, and then afterwards, after the offense, some of these religious profession, you know, the priests and ministers will also use distortions Things like, you know, uh, compartmentalization. So, like, this is the evil part of me that I'm going to compartmentalize uh, and fight with the godly part of me. Or or they'll pray about it like this, like Chad did, you know. It's a dichotomization to see yourself as all good on one hand means that those parts that you just did are all bad. And they're just, you just keep the lid on it tight and separate the two as if it's two different people. So you're mm-hmm. you're essentially creating this, you know, the angel, like he said in his statement, mm-hmm. he's got a devil, you know, or what, I forget what his words, but you create that angel yeah. on one shoulder, devil on the other, instead of viewing yourself as integrated. In Curtis's case, right, it had this extra kind of benefit for him that some of the girls took that as indication that he was going to correct this problem. And, you know, it might have been a terrible thing that happened, but clearly he's apologetic about it, and we don't want to destroy his life. So... He's buying himself time from the victims in that sort of way yeah. by them accepting this this compartmentalization as well. Now we have to be careful too because I don't want to suggest that all, that religion itself is a facilitator of abuse in general cases. Right. But what I'm suggesting is that it looks like it can be integ- by the perception both of yourself and then knowing that other people think of you this way. The perception that because you're religious. You know, or over the top religious, that means that you're morally beyond reproach. That part is dangerous. 
yeah. because because it sets up both a denial of your own aspect and then other people think that too. In fact, there's been some studies done of sex offenders where they find that the, the atheist actually in prison had a lower vi- number of victim uh, track record than the people who were steady religious types. In other words, that, that the religion didn't seem to form any protective function. It's, it's not In saying fact, that oftentimes it provided it, access. It provided a shield but, but, for the abuser. Yeah, so when yeah. you have somebody like a priest or a athlete like this who has a, the image of that, people mm-hmm. might give them more latitude and it might go on longer than it, what it would have been. Can you imagine if it would yeah. have been Jeremy the Atheist teacher training girls in this thing? I mean, people would or be all Or Kevin Sorbo. Yes. I don't even like my name being used in that sentence, <laughs> but I know what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so in, in some ways it's dangerous. I guess part of a dangerous aspect is on a, co- a group social level of thinking that people are beyond reproach. We, we sometimes give them more latitude and we don't check up on them as much as we should mm-hmm. the, with the appropriate amount of suspicion. Another study that you sent, Luke, Evangelicalism, Sexual Morality, and Sexual Addiction. That article discussed the sexual purity movement and some of the literature that was within it. You know, from this, you get a sense that there are so many Christian support groups and so many self-help books on avoiding marital infidelity or dealing with sexual problems. Like it's it's clearly reacting to a problem within the community. But if you look at the solutions that they're instructing people in, they're based on – Poor readings of the Bible and a lot of pop psychology and and not at all helpful. And when the expectations are sexual purity even in thought, not just in deed, Mm -hmm. one way to ease your guilt over having uh, quite ordinary sexual urges is to pathologize those urges and make them out to be an addiction. Then you don't have to confront, well, maybe these expectations placed on us by our culture not even to feel lust – Far before you've actually committed adultery, don't even feel lust is the the sin. And I imagine you know. that would have a bit of a feedback effect. Yeah, it's a yes, and that was where it was going. Once you perceive yourself as a sexual addict, then it, it makes more sense to continue. Right. Being it's very things. similar to uh, I was going to. I have that study in the queue for a future episode, so maybe we can expand on it. But just for now, it's very similar to what you see in a lot of religiously based AA programs, where the where the theory is that you know what, an alcoholic is a quality a qualitatively different state. Mm-hmm. And so since you're an alcoholic and you've defined yourself as somebody who cannot drink by definition under a controlled way, you've just dichotomized yourself where you're either a drunk or you're sober, on the wagon, off the wagon. Right. And they say think the phrases are like one drink is a drunk. If you that leads to what a behaviorist would call an abstinence violation effect. In essence, when you've opened the bag of chips and had one chip, well, since you're an eating addict, might as well, might as well eat the whole bag. Or you know, since you've had that first sip of beer and you've had a slip, here we go. You're an alcoholic. Yeah. So with sexual aspects, well, my although read you on really that, should be very careful if you're an alcoholic. Yeah, if you have but a clearly, just, some people right. who cannot, who are just best yep. being sober and never yeah. or not using drugs or whatever, not right. even leaving that door open. But like we were just talking about in the sexual realm, if you define any sort of sexual excess outside the mainstream as being an addiction and it sounds like that's what these people are doing in that study was that they were viewing porn at a particular you know probably a normative porn viewing or something like that that i'm a sex addict then you've sort of lost control over that any sort of small deviancy is equivalent to just being demonically out of control you lose control over that you you could just jerk off and be like whoo got that out of the way Ah," and go back to your life but but instead you're seeing yourself as a sexual criminal and uh and you might go further with it because of that who said you put the cork in too tight it's gonna blow up no no no, wait i just said that 
So, again, it's a sort of a reaction formation. Interesting and disturbing stuff, but... Mm-hmm. But this is one area where Christians could really benefit themselves by jettisoning some of their pseudoscientific and simplistic beliefs about sexuality. I don't blame them for wanting to be committed to a certain type of moral worldview. But uh, if you're going to do so, be smart about it and be realistic about the the chances for things going wrong. Um, They might all be better in approaching this in a little more honest and educated way. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, after that very depressing story, let's try to wrap up this episode on a lighter note. We're happy to announce for our fans a uh, uh, something exciting for the next episode. Jeremy and I just finished an hour-long in-depth interview with uh, Bart D. Ehrman. Uh, we discuss, among other things, the, uh, the main thrust of his book about how Jesus, a itinerant preacher from Galilee, came to be known as God, and it's a fascinating hour-long conversation. Yeah, was, we're really excited to share share it with you, so be sure to look for that on the next Reasonable Doubts. And also, uh, a little message to our online community of fans. As longtime listeners know, <laughs> and, and many of you have emailed in, we have, we've had all sorts of trouble with our, with our RSS feed for the podcast. A number of you have written us helpful suggestions— as to what to do to change it, and no matter what we do, this problem doesn't seem to go away. So sometime in the next month, we're going to be changing our feed. We are going to try to keep it at the same address so that you don't notice any kind of interruption in your access to this show. But there's a small chance that that will not be a possibility for us, and and this will be the last time you'll be hearing something downloaded from the existing feed. Hmm. If that is the case... And you do not find that Bart Ehrman audio in your podcatcher over the next couple of weeks. We do ask that you go to www.doubtcast.org to get details as to where you might subscribe to the new feed uh, for the show. We are not going off the air and we are not going off the internet we may just be switching switching some services around. So please do make the effort to look us up if this feed goes silent. With that, thank you for listening. For any comments, questions, or feedback, please email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at, at doubtcast. And we are also periodically posting videos at uh, our YouTube channel, which is just doubtcast. Uh, we have some episode clips that are easily shareable for uh, your friends and uh, some videos on there as well. Yeah, definitely uh, definitely fun thing to go check out the the YouTube feed, and we're trying to bring a little more traffic there as well. So uh, thank you for listening, and until next time, bear hugs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's end it there with bear hugs. (laughs) To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 